Welcome to Roots Radio, weekly high school Bible studies located at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. We're starting the book of Exodus tonight, and then um, second of all, coming up at the end of the month or the beginning of, in the middle of October, here's what's going to happen. We have something called Next coming up. And that's all I can tell you about that. It's called Next. It's October 17th and October 18th. So that is coming up, just so you know. And that's all I'm going to tell you. It's called Next. Um, It's going to be on a Saturday. It's going to be on a Sunday. Also, there's one other thing I wanted to tell you. At the end of October, October 30th, the night before Halloween, Friday, with my little pinky, Friday, October 30th, we are having what is called the Roots Rally. And that is a night dedicated to you, for you, is a night we are having the band Citizens and Saints is coming to our church to play a free concert in our own sanctuary. It's going to be, it's going to be crazy. The whole night is free. There's food trucks there that you'll have to pay for food, but there'll be free coffee in the courtyard. It's going to be awesome. We'll have flyers for you next Wednesday, and um, it is an event for you to invite your unsaved friends to. Pastor John's going to be sharing the gospel that night, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's October 30th here in San Juan, and um, we're looking forward to it. So be praying for it. Be praying for that event. Be praying about who you might invite to that event as we're really uh, getting ready for that. So lastly, last thing I want to remind you of, winter camp is upon us in 2016. So um, at the end, or January 15th through the 18th, uh, it is Martin Luther King weekend. So you have that Monday off, most of you. So we'll get to spend the entire weekend in the mountains. So you get an extra day of camp this year. We'll go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we come back Monday. Um, we have rented a house for you. It is a giant cabin. It's, it's got 7,000 square feet in the back hills of the mountains. And with El Nino coming, who knows? Maybe some snow. So uh, it is in California, however. So those things are all coming up. We'll let you know as they get closer. And um, yeah, exciting. If you have your Bible, the book of Exodus tonight, chapter 1. We are going to be studying through this book for the next 19 weeks. I'm just kidding. That's a round figure. I don't know how long it's going to take. But it's a big book. There's a lot of stuff in it. And the Old Testament is really cool. So um, Exodus is what we're going to be in for the next couple weeks. The whole theme of the book is the way out. The way out. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, their way out of Egypt, but we're going to look at tonight something that we're going to call shake the nest. So if you have your Bible and you're there, let's read verses 1 through 7, and we will start. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet here, to, to meet with you tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might hear from you, that we might draw closer to you. And Jesus, we love you and thank you for all that you do for us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, Exodus was written by who? Who knows who wrote the book of Exodus? Right on. Caleb. Moses wrote the book of Exodus. Rabbis call this book the book of names because it opens with a list of names. These names are the sons of Jacob who brought their families to Egypt to escape the famine in Genesis chapter 46. In Genesis chapter 46, you remember a great famine broke out in the land. Um, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. There Joseph was in, um, in Egypt. He was sold uh, to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar then put him as like the, the main guy in his house. Potiphar's wife also thought he was the main man of the house. And so we have that story of her saying, oh, Joseph. <laughs> and he telling her, absolutely not. You're old. And he ran, not just old, but no, you're a married woman. It's wrong. I'm out of here. And he ran out of the house naked because she grabbed his clothes. We have that story. She falsely accused him of raping her. And so he um, then ends and he ends up in prison for the next few years. And while he's there in prison, there's two people, the cupbearer and the baker that, were, that belonged to the king, that worked for the king. There they are in prison with Joseph. And Joseph begins to talk with them and he interprets their dreams. And one of their dream, both of their dreams come true. The chef dies. The cupbearer gets his, his job back. And you remember Joseph told him, remember me. Tell the king that I've been falsely accused and get me out of this place. And so when he got out, Joseph's thinking, yes, finally, I'm out of here. He sat in that prison prison for another two years. And all of this, God was working a plan out for Joseph. And when Joseph was sold into slavery, um, he was then put into second command over all of Egypt. As he's brought out to interpret the king's dream, he gets it right. He tells the king, this is what we should do. This is how we should handle this big drought that we're going to have. And Joseph is used by God in a mighty way. And we can see God moving and working his plan out for the nation of Israel. And the first word of this book could actually be now. It says, now these are the names of the children. It could be actually the word and, sorry. And Joseph dies at the age of 110, and God is about to do something else. It's kind of like it just moves right through the death of Joseph. He's 110 years old. He dies there in Egypt. They place him in a coffin. And in the next verse, and these are the names. And it's moving on. It's a continuation of the story that is told in Exodus. And when we're moving on through that, and it's a continuation of a work of God. God's going to use Israel's experience in Egypt to prepare them for a special task that he gave to them accomplish on the earth. Israel was a special nation, and they had a special calling that God had given them and what they were going to be used for. And number one was to bear witness of the true God. That's part of what they were called to do is to proclaim who God was, that there is one God and his name, and there's one God, and we bear witness of the one true God. Number two was the writing of the Holy Scriptures. They were going to write this stuff down. God, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was going to breathe on his prophets, and they were going to write for us what we now have in our hand. And the third, the third thing, the third task that they would have was the bringing of the Savior into the world would come through the Jewish nation. 
So there's a, a big task that God has, a big plan that he has for the Israeli people. And so everything that is happening is a part of what God is doing and a part of God's plan. He took them there to Egypt. He provided for them in that time of famine. And now he's going to use this time while they're still in Egypt to further his plan and what God has for these people. But in verse 6, it says, And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful. In verse 8, it says, Now these arose a new king, or now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. In Because of Joseph and what he did for the nation of Egypt, for the nation of Israel, there was this kind of respect that was paid to him and to the Hebrew people. Because he saved them. Without him, everyone would have died. I mean, there was this great kind of appreciation for him. And there was this um, sense of indebtedness to the Hebrew people by the Egyptians. And so they kind of appreciated those people there. But it says here that Joseph died and his memory died. And the appreciation of these people died off as well. And a new Pharaoh is going to arise. And when that happens... There's gonna, they're going to recognize a, an issue that has arisen in this text. Here's the issue. But these children of Israel were fruitful. They increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Notice how many times it just describes how many Jewish people there are in Egypt. That is a very descriptive sentence. It, it says that they were fruitful. They increased abundantly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly. They were mighty. And they were filling up the land. It's almost as if it was something supernatural that God was doing. There's a population explosion that happened in this time frame. And the population at this time was doubling itself every 25 years. Every 25 years, the Jewish nation would double in size. It's, that's huge. That's a lot of babies being born. So, and what you find, I think what we can find from the text is there's something that God was doing supernaturally. That God was blessing them beyond what was naturally capable. That they were producing more kids than ever before. I mean, just, you'd look at a girl and she got pregnant. I mean, it just was happening and God was working and all this. And they were just not married people. Come on. They were getting um, pregnant a lot quicker and God was multiplying them and blessing them. And you're like, that doesn't sound like a blessing. I have little brothers and sisters. That's not a blessing. More babies. How is that? No. But the Bible equates blessing to kids. I mean, he'd multiply their house. I'm going to bless your house. And that means more and more children. The Bible talks about kids as being this, this wonderful gift from God. That a man who has a full quiver is a blessed man. And I have two little arrows that are like insane. And I'm thinking, I'm good. I can't imagine how, can you imagine having like the average of 10? Like the average Jewish household had 10 kids or whatever. And you're like, oh, it's no big deal. It's like a herd. That's not a group. That's not a family. That is a pack. That is a herd. That's a lot of, that's a gaggle. It's geese. Anyway, that's a lot of kids. In verses 8 and 9, we say, he says here, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. They looked at the Hebrew people and saw that their population had numbered in the 600,000s. At this time, it's estimated that 600,000 men over the age of 21. 
And in military terms, that means you have a big stinking army. That's a really big army. They didn't really factor in kids and women. But if you would factor that in, that's a group of people of a population of upwards of two to three million people that actually aren't from your country. That's a lot of people. And so they're looking at the land. They're going, they outnumber us. And let's say that, that something would happen where we're attacked from the outside and, and the, the Jews get wind of it and they revolt against us. We're now facing an army of a million people. And that's not good for us. That's not looking very good for us. We need to do something. We need to, we need to come against them. And so their, their um, kind of resolve or resolution to deal with the situation is to enslave them. And in verse 11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were dread, in dread of the children of Israel. This was a, not a household kind of slavery, where they put each uh, Hebrew slave up on a block and they auctioned them off. This was a nationwide enslaving where they said, if you're a Jew, you have now become property of the Egyptian government. You work for us, and here's what you're going to do. You are going to make bricks every single day. And what they were charged to do is because Pharaoh was a city builder, especially store cities, and we have the two cities that they built, it says that they needed immense quantities of bricks. So the Jews were taken from shepherding flocks and working out in the fields, and he put them into manual labor camps. And they would dig the stiff clay, knead it by hand and feet, shape it into molds, all under the careful watch of the taskmaster, who was encouraged to whip them. If anyone refused to work or stumbled or looked like they were resting, they would be beaten and scourged. That's the type of slavery we're talking about where every single day they were worked to the bone. And yes, some of them were actually beaten to death by their taskmaster. And this is what had happened. I mean, this is the life they were now brought into. And Pharaoh's whole plan in this was to physically tear them down that they wouldn't have the energy, they wouldn't have desire to bring children into this world. They would look at what's going on and they would say, we can't bring kids into this type of world. If you look at what's going on around us, this is not the time to be raising a family. That was his whole plan, is to work them to a place of exhaustion. And it's similar to what happens in the New Testament, in the early church, you remember when in Acts chapter, I think it's four or five, when the, the gospel begins to spread like wildfire, what happens is Satan then brings persecution against them. And when persecution begins to happen, it disperses the church into the outer regions. And what, what takes place is the gospel then spreads. People are then emboldened by their persecution to go out and share the gospel. And when they do, more and more people, it actually backfired on the devil. And so the church grew in numbers and the gospel spread like wildfire during times of severe persecution. And the church became strong. It became extremely strong and big and emboldened by their persecution. Someone said today that... that um, Oh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Ugh. Prosperity. Prosperity for the church 
has never helped the church. There's a comfortability that happened within this, within the early church that then kind of shut things down. When persecution and when Christianity became legal, when it was illegal, man, it was like burning up. When it became legal is when the church kind of settled down. And in this prosperity that came, actually, the devil kind of adopted this, this old adage of if you can't beat him, let's just join him. And so he kind of pulled back on his attack of the, of the persecution of the church, and it actually, it worked. What happened is Christians became very comfortable. And comfortability actually is, a, is what we're going to talk about later tonight as we look at the children of Israel. But comfortability is actually something that can be crippled. When you're comfortable, how many of you ever, like, you're not moving when you're comfortable? Has that ever happened to you? Like you're in bed and you have found the spot. Like you are laying and you're like, if I just, nope, I'm not going to move. Because if I move my arm, I'm completely comfortable right now. And the blankets and the air conditioner and everything is just working together, creating this perfect Zen garden of sleep. And if I move and get up, all hell will break loose. Like you have the TV there, the remote is there, your comfort, and your mom says, can you do ma? And you're like, absolutely not. Do you even know how hard it was to get this comfortable? Anytime, if you have a pet or something, you're like, move. Ever had a dog that just lays there? And you gotta like, just, you're pushing it, and it's, it won't move. It's so comfortable. Comfortability actually cripples us. And we as the church get very comfortable. And uncom- when we're uncomfortable, is that, like, that just makes me so uncomfortable. How many of you heard that, that term? I'm not talking about close talkers. I'm talking about sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, talking about Jesus, being a light where you are. You're like, well, that just makes me uncomfortable. Have you ever thought that God is more concerned with your holiness than he is with your comfort? That God is more concerned about you becoming more like Jesus each day, more than he is concerned about how comfortable you are. In fact, he's going to shake you out of your comfort. I'm sure you've heard the term, if you've been in the church at any point, you hear the term, we need to get out of our comfort zones. Have you ever heard that? It's just, we need to break out of these comfort zones that we have. Like we have a zone, like this is where I'm comfortable. and I just need to break out of it. We, (laughs) not to use that weird creepy, lispy voice, but there are times where we do, we get very comfortable. And that is what was happening within the church, the, the church when, when Christianity became legal, that is what happened. The Lord tells uh, Abraham, who would be the father of the Israeli nation, he says, now when the sun was going down, Genesis chapter 15, Verses 12 through 14 says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possession." If you look down a verse or a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 15, God compares Egypt to this type of furnace. And that, that, those verses in chapter 15 of Genesis are referring to their time in Egypt. They would be there for 400 years, in slavery for 400 years. 
And he says, after that 400 years, they would come out of what would seem like this furnace. He says in verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that appeared between those pieces. He's comparing Egypt to this furnace experience. This furnace experience. And Israel would go through the furnace, but they would come out a mighty nation. The Bible talks about us being clay. I mean, you are the potter. You ever hear that old song that your parents, no, just my parents? My parents used to play this on repeat, like on the record player. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me. Have you heard that song? Don't leave me hanging. Like, participate. You can move your head more than, it's okay. It, it, yes, you are the potter. We are the clay. Have you heard, it's, it's from a verse that we are clay. And Jesus, God is the potter. <laughs> Very good. And, and as that, he is molding us and shaping us. Do you know what they do when they get the mold exactly the way they would like it? What do they do? Have you ever been to Color Me Mine? Have you ever been to that where you like make a cup? Do you know what they do with that? In order to, when you get it back, what do they do? They put it in a kiln. What is a kiln? It's a stinking furnace. It's fire. It, burn, it heats it up with such fervent heat that it makes it harder and stronger. That's what we're seeing here is the children of Israel are going to go through 400 years of suffering and difficulty. They're going to come out of it a mighty nation. Look what it says as they go in. It says that they grew exceedingly mighty. And as they grow exceedingly mighty, God is going to bring them through a time of difficulty and coming out of it, they're going to be extremely strong. And trial and difficulty actually serve a specific purpose in our life. It causes us to lean on the Lord. In that fire, we find, we, we come out on the other side of our faith. Although it was shaken for a time, it has been fortified and solidified by the Lord. God actually has purpose in difficult situations. You may be entering into a time where you're like, this just, this is stinky. There's no other word to describe. Well, there are, but I'm not going to use those words. These, this is a situation that is difficult. I'm not happy about it. I'm in it. Guess what? God will use it as fire to burn up, to burn away flesh. The thing that we rely upon is now gone, and we have to rely upon the Lord. And when we come out of it, we come out stronger, our faith being strengthened in the Lord. So God actually has purpose in trial and difficulty. It's just like lifting weights or, or any type of training for sports. How many of you ever lifted weights? Most, I see most of you because you're like, Jack. But if you've ever lifted weights to the point of failure, have you ever done that before? Where you are, we used to have this lifting schedule that on it, it would say like your reps would be five, three, one failure. So, so your weight with each rep, you would do five reps of whatever you feel like you could do five. And it had to be difficult. And you did another weight on three reps and it had to be a, something that you could only do it three times. And the last one would be your max, as much as you could possibly do. And then it would say to failure, meaning you lifted until your muscles stopped working, whatever lift that was. So either if you were doing bench press, you would do it as many times as you could until your muscles would actually begin to fail. They didn't work. Has that ever happened to you? Isn't that fun? 
We used to do, it doesn't look like I do crunches, but we used to do crunches to the point where like I would get in the shower and I would put my head back to get my hair wet and I would go, oh, and I would fall because my, I couldn't pull myself back up. Or I would lift weights, we would do like curls and stuff like that to the point where your arms are stuck like, like this. You're like, what's up, girl? Hey, because your arms were so torn apart. Or leg day, when you would like squat till you couldn't squat anymore, till failure. And what you're seeing as you lift like that, you're like, wow, my muscles are getting bigger. Do you know what's happening to your muscles? They're being torn apart. If you're ever lifting, you're like, I am sore. It's not because your muscles are like, I'm just, it's, they have been ripped that's what has happened. Your muscles have been ripped apart. And when they heal, the reason they're getting bigger is because they heal and they get bigger as they heal on top of each other. That's what a muscle does. As we go through trial, as we go through difficulty, we are being torn down that we might be built up stronger. And you're going to see that in the nation of Israel. Because what they're going to go through in the next 40 years, whew, it's going to be gnarly. And God has a plan in our trial. God has a plan in our difficulty. If we'll be open to allowing it to teach us something. Often when we're going through something difficult, we just want it to be over. Has that ever happened to you? Like, I just want this to be over. If you have to run really far, you're like, I just don't, I don't want to run the mile today at PE. I just want this to be over. I just want to reach the finish line. I just want to throw up and be done. I just don't want to do this anymore. If you will allow God to teach you in the trial, not just look to the end, but look at God in the midst and see how God would use it and God would teach you through it, then it's accomplishing or it will help accomplish and do what God has set out for it to do. And so they look at the situation and they think we need to do something about it. We're going to work them to death. So in verse 13, it says, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. It means they're going to work them to death. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in the manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor, meaning it was hard. Everything they did was difficult and they made it more difficult on them than it had to be. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiprah, and the other name was Pua. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Pua. That's funny. And he said, when, do you, when you do the duties of a midwife, duties, Pua, this is awesome, and for the Hebrew women, and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall live. The plan backfired on working them to death and actually increased the number of kids that they were having. I mean, it just created more. God was supernaturally working and blessing them. And so Pharaoh's plan had turned to bloodshed. It was called, if I can pronounce it correctly, it's plan B, but it's infanticide, which is killing all the infants. His first plan was to use midwives. Midwives were, when there was a woman giving birth, the, the midwife would come and help her through the birthing process. And so he tells these two women who either they were Hebrew or they were Egyptian. We don't know, but these are Hebrew names. So perhaps they are Hebrew. Uh, we don't know. But he asked them, he told them, he commanded them, when you go to help with a birth, if it's a male, I want you to kill it on the spot. 
If it's a girl, you can let it live. That's what he asked these two women to do. And it says in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. That was his first plan. Number one, let's kill all the kids as they're being born. But God would not allow this to happen. Because if Pharaoh succeeds, look at this from a, a just a, his plan was actually brilliant. Because within a couple of years, he actually would have destroyed the Hebrew nation. In just a few years. In, in, in perhaps his lifetime, he could have seen the demise of the entire Hebrew nation. Because without Hebrew boys, there would be no more Hebrew babies. All the men would die off, and all that would be left were the Hebrew women. They would marry into Egyptian families, and there, there's no Hebrews left. And what that would mean is there's no scripture, there's no prophets, there's no savior. And so God would not allow this to happen. And these two women that are employed, they actually, and I want you to underline something in your Bible, in verse 17 it says, but the midwives feared God. It did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children. The way that God provided protection for the nation of Israel was not through some giant miracle or, or some his face coming out of the clouds and speaking, but he used two midwives and it started with them fearing the Lord. They had a fear of God. Not that they were scared of God, but they had a respect for the Lord. They had a respect for the Lord and what God said. And they knew that what they would, if they did that, that was wrong. And they knew, according to God's word, that that was wrong. They had a fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 9, 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These women started with this radical respect for God and because they respected the Lord and what he said, then they acted upon what God said. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It was this immense respect for the holiness and sovereignty and power of God and who he is. And so they obeyed the Lord. In verse 18, it says, So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? But the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and, he, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And you can, now some of you are going to look at this and go, Well, they lied. Just straight up to his face, they lied. This is my proof text for lying. I, therefore, will be honored by God for lying. And I'm just lying my butt off. This is not a proof text for lying. They chose the lesser of the sin. Would, it, would, would you agree that telling Pharaoh this would be great, would be a lesser thing to stand before the Lord for than to stand before God and say, yeah, I killed a bunch of Hebrew babies. And so they chose, let's, if, if we're going to stand before God someday, I'd rather have lied and done what God would, would have wanted me to do than to go against the Lord. And it says here that God actually dealt with them well. Siri, do you know 
what the book of Exodus is about. There we go. The, therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God, and they provided households for them. God blesses them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Here he goes. This is his last ditch effort. In verse 22, he now employs the entire Egyptian nation to keep this law and this decree. If you find a Hebrew baby, you are under strict orders to throw it into the river and drown them all. That was his plan, was genocide of infants. And as he made this command, we can't help but notice, and spoiler alert if you've never read this book, God is going to kill the entire Egyptian army by water. Isn't that interesting? It goes back to the book of Genesis where God said, I will bless those who bless you, Israel, and I will curse those who curse you. You ever wonder why, like, you see those bumper stickers where people are so adamant about Israel and, like, why are people, like, we're in California. Why do people care about Israel? Why does the church talk about Israel? Why do we take tours and go and see the nation of Israel? Why is that such a big deal? Because those who bless Israel will be blessed by God. And those who curse Israel will be cursed by God. You can see it. As the United States, we as a country have stood with Israel. We have fought with Israel. We have supported Israel. And God has blessed our nation. But as the political, I don't want to get all political, but listen, it's important that we stand and pray for Israel. Because that verse, man, God said that. If you bless them, I will bless you. Anyone who comes against you, I am against them. God fights for Israel. There have been so many times where nations all around Israel have come and like tried to just wipe her out. And God shows up and destroys the enemy. It's like insane. You should hear kind of some of the stories about Israel being attacked. Israel having like one tank against 20 Saudi Arabian tanks. And the one tank blows up all the other tanks. Like this happens every time. Every time someone's like, we're going to pick on Israel. God's like, "Go try it. Watch what happens. Your tank's going to, I'm just going to wipe out tanks and jets are going to fall. I don't even care. Everything else is going to burn. Israel's going to survive. And that's why we are so adamant about the support of Israel. And God is going to destroy an entire army with water. But you look at, I can't help but, you know, kind of make correlation. God has reason for the suffering of the Israelites. And it goes back to some, something that we already talked about. Egypt for Israel was comfortable. As they were there under the rule of, of Joseph and everything that Joseph had done, they were comfortable there. It was a great place. I mean, it was a, a hub of like so much industry and support. They had homes. They had food. Everything was kind of comfortable. And the object of this whole process was to stir up the nest, to make it, Egypt distasteful and to prepare them to obey the supreme call to arise and follow God. That, that when we get comfortable ourselves, we don't want to move. And so God is allowing this to happen to make Egypt distasteful for them. Because God never meant for Israel to stay in Egypt. 
There you go. God never meant for Egypt to be their home, right? Where was Israel's home? It's in, the, it's in Israel. Very good. God had prepared. Is that a trick question? I don't know. There was a, a whole land prepared for them. Egypt was not the place they were supposed to be and supposed to stay. Egypt is going to get very, very uncomfortable for them. That they may desire to leave. Because when we're comfortable, listen, you personally, when you are comfortable where you are, there's very little reason to get up and do anything. If you're comfortable at being a couch potato Christian, so is the devil. He is okay very much so okay with you just sitting on your butt as a Christian and doing absolutely nothing for the kingdom of God. Because you can build a life that doesn't bother him, but when you build towards the kingdom of God, that awakes him. We have to be careful not to become complacent and so comfortable in this world because this is not our home. This is not our final destination. This is not our final resting place. Egypt is going to get very uncomfortable. And if you think, because we're going to look at plagues, if you think, gosh, that's excessive. Did God really have to make it that uncomfortable? Blood. If, if he had to use frogs and flies and hailstorms. Why did he have to, why was it so severe? You don't know the Jewish people if you think that's excessive. In the book of Numbers, it tells us that they were complaining about manna. Remember, they get out there and they're like, every day we have this stinking manna. Every day, God rains down food for us. Every day, it's the same thing. And we're out here. And then they start to talk amongst themselves and they say something like this. Do you remember the flesh pots, the garlic, the leeks? Oh man, Egypt. Remember that? Dude, a different garlic dish every night, dog. And here we are eating manna. They were still, even as they watched God part the Red Sea, even if they watched, as they watched manna come down from heaven every day, they saw a pillar of smoke lead them. Or a cloud, sorry, a cloud lead them in the daytime. A pillar of fire at night to keep light so they could see in the wilderness. They're watching all this happen. They still go, man, Egypt. Remember that? That was sick. When we got to like make, remember when we got to work with our hands and make bricks? That was sweet. I got all these like scars on my back from all the whips and stuff, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, you can just see it's like crazy talk. Egypt was still rooted in their heart. That comfortability was still rooted in their heart. And so Egypt is going to get very, very bitter and distasteful for them. And God's going to lose it or use it, lose it. God's going to allow it because he's making them uncomfortable. It's going to get them uncomfortable. The same with us as Christians. God will allow you to be uncomfortable to remind us that this is not where we're spending the rest of our life. This is not my eternal home. My eternal home is in heaven. That's what I'm working for. That's what I'm looking towards. And the second thing that it teaches us is that we're made for more. Actually, we're made for more than what the mundane everyday that we experience. Someone explained it this way. Epi Meyer says, your appetite, appetite may be arrested for the time, but it cannot be permanently satisfied. You're like, what does that mean? I don't know. Here's what it means. 
An appetite, how many of you have an appetite? I'm so hungry right now as we speak. Every Wednesday night, this is what happens. I leave this place and I go home and I make the weirdest concoction of whatever is in my fridge. I don't care if it's peanut butter and jelly, cereal, you know, tortillas with turkey rolled up inside of it or turkey sandwiches or, or even prime rib. There's been a time. It used to be just Del Taco. You leave this place, you hit that Del Taco on the way home, and it was like, I would eat a whole thing of fries before it even got to my driveway. And Lauren was like, did you? Really? You ate all of them? Yes, I did. That is just this feasting appetite. But guess what happened in the morning? You're like, Di no, 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 not that one. <laughs> you guys are sick. But guess what would happen? I would get hungry again. Freaks. Okay, I would get hungry again. Does that ever happen to you? How have you ever eaten Taco Bell and two hours later, you're hungry again? You had a Taco Bell feast. You got a number 12, which isn't even on there, but it's just everything. I would like everything. You eat it all and you're like, that was so good. Oh my gosh. Two hours later, you're like, I, you know, I could go for a snack. What? It doesn't fill you. It doesn't satisfy completely. It satisfies for a moment, but yet it cannot completely satisfy my appetite. And what F.B. Meyer is saying here is that we are made for more. This is not the place that we're going to be satisfied ultimately. No matter what the world offers you, it will not satisfy you. Totally, completely. The richest men in the world, if you ask them, are you satisfied? Are you done? And their, their answer is, one more dollar is what I need. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't matter how much you could accumulate, how much you could do. Just ask Solomon. He wrote a whole book, the book of Ecclesiastes, talking about how nothing satisfied him. He was the richest, wisest man who ever lived. He built an entire country. He built botanical gardens. He, he had more wealth than he knew what to do with. He had more women, drugs, and alcohol than anyone ever experienced or ever will. And he said at the end of his life, as he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, guess what? I hate all. All of it, because none of it satisfied me. Everything that I built, I'll die and someone else will get it. Everything I'm accumulating, I'll die and it will go to somebody else. I can't take it with me. Solomon had this sense that, that we are made for something so much more than what the world portrays that we are made for. And the third thing is that God has something better for us. Actually, there's another one. But God has something better for us. Not flesh pots, but manna. Not water from the Nile, but water from the rock, as we're going to see. Not the land of Egypt with the Sphinx and the pyramids, but a land that is prepared for them, flowing with, with, wild, with milk and honey. God had something better for you. He has something better for them. He had something better for you. And there's this constant picture in the book of Exodus as Egypt being a type of the world and God calling us out of the world that he has something better. He has a world. He has a, a plan. He has for us a home that is better than what we have currently. That, that we would have this distaste for the things of the world. And so God will allow us to become uncomfortable. But the third thing is that we as God allowed the nation of Israel to go through this, they recognized that they need a deliverer. They need a deliverer. And in chapter 2, you're going to see the deliverer be born as Moses is going to be that guy. 
but they recognize their need for deliverance. This need for freedom of sin is something that we identify with as we come to this place that you've tried on your own, you've come to a point where you are sick of, of sin, sick of being caught up in the same old stuff. You've tried to fill the void with, with any and everything and you have a place of recognition, finally, that you need deliverance from it. That's what the nation of Israel is going to come to the conclusion of. And that is what every person needs to come to the conclusion of. That without Jesus, there is no deliverance from sin. But there's trucks. Without Jesus, there is no deliverance from sin. There is no deliverance from it. He is our deliverer. He is the one who sets us free. And so, as this truck goes by, that is chapter one. Next week, chapter two. Next week, I think they're doing delivery. It's okay. Next week, we are going to be in the sanctuary to begin. Okay? We're going to have communion with the church. So next week, don't come here first. Go to the big service. Sit in the, sit in the sanctuary. I want to encourage you guys. Pastor John has said it before. You can sit anywhere in the sanctuary. If you want to sit in the front row while you're in there, do it. If you're like, I don't want to, I want to sit in the back. Dude, sit up front. Let's push up this week. Don't feel like you can't sit inside the sanctuary. You got reserved in the back. You guys can sit anywhere in that place. But just know that after communion, after worship, after the, kind of everyone stands, we're going to come back over here and we're going to be in chapter two next week. But I want to encourage you guys, Sit in that, sit up there and worship the Lord with the rest of the church. You are more, I know we meet in different buildings and stuff, and I don't know, some people are like, I don't feel part of the church. You are, you are part of the church. The fact that our pastor actually invests in you in renting this place so that you can have your own service is, is should, hopefully, I hope you know that he cares about you that much. This is like, I know space and all that stuff. Pastor John has, has rented this school so that you can have your own place because he, he wants to invest in you. And, and in that, you are a part of this church. You are a valued member of this whole church. It's not, oh, we're in the youth services and they're over there. Yes, we are, but we are all part of the church. So when you guys get to sit, when we sit in the main sanctuary, I want to encourage you, press up, worship, Sing, be a part of the service there, okay? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do um, ask God that you would continue to work these things out in our heart as we are called to, um, to know you, Lord, to grow in you. Lord, we pray just the, the world that we live in would become distasteful. Lord, it would become unappetizing. Lord, the distractions that we have and the things around us, Lord, we're so blessed, so blessed to live where we do. Um, but Lord, we are distracted so often by the stuff around us. And so, God, we pray that you would cause this world to be uncomfortable for us, that it would be distasteful to us, that we would long for heaven, that we would long to see you. And so, Lord, thank you for that reminder tonight, that we would be shaken up 
out of complacency, out of um, a place of apathy, Lord. And um, God, we thank you for your love for us, that you delivered us from sin and from death. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.